Big Adventures with Brian Durker is sponsored by Lynn Delane. She writes, I love the Grand Canyon, which is why I keep coming back every year to raft the Colorado River. But in the meantime, I also love to listen to Big Adventures with Brian Durker. There's never a dull moment on or off the river. Thank you, Lynn, for your support of Big Adventures. I would like to invite everybody into the studio right now with Ken Phillips and Brian Durker. It's Big Adventures. First and foremost, uh, you've just done this incredible uh, and dedicated service to the Grand Canyon. And I have to tell you, your your reputation and your, your commitment to the canyon and stuff has been something that's uh, really noticed and appreciated by a lot of people. So... Well, it's an honor to be here out. with you, yeah. Brian. No, it's fantastic. Yeah. And of course, we'll 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 dig into the deep, hopefully not too dark past of Ken Phillips. Where where were you born and stuff? San Diego. I grew up uh, in oh, San Diego. San Diego boy. Yep. You know, I, I find a weird irony. My my father was an engineer after he got out of the Navy, and 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 he'd grown up in San Diego, but he worked for a water company. And uh, when you think about it, you know, a lot of the water for Southern California comes. Colorado River. And, uh, you know, I spend my career back at, I wouldn't say the headwaters, but the source of what is headed to Southern California. And so many people there don't really have an appreciation for where their water really comes from. Yeah, where they get it. And, you know, the Imperial Valley and the whole Southern California Colorado water element is an amazing story. You know, the Cadillac Desert is a great read. I'd recommend all you listeners to read that someday. That's a still very relevant book. But um, so you you're born in San Diego. Diego. What's your dad do? He's well, he's uh, since passed. So is my mom. But at an early age, uh, I lost them both to cancer. But uh, I went to San Diego State. And uh, I came to Grand Canyon for a college internship. Oh, wow. Uh, in 1983. I was working at... Uh, There's oh, a year to come to Grand Canyon. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, ironically, uh, after I finished my internship, I went off got uh, to Seasonal Law Enforcement Academy in California and came back and uh, got a job as a seasonal down at Phantom Ranch there in uh Late spring of 1983. Well, Just and for, for the listener, the, the 1983 was this epic yep. part of the Grand Canyon story in that they had to release 100,000 cubic feet per second from the dam because they had underestimated the inflow, and, and for the first time they had a full pond. So uh, a huge year. It was unbelievable to see the water level rise as far as it did for People that have been to Phantom, um, the, the river backed up to uh, the lower bridge on Bright Angel Creek. Yeah, amazing. And you could have pulled a boat in there. Yeah. And uh, it was just a mind-boggling amount of water. So you're living at Phantom Ranch and just watching that water come up, and I'm somewhere upstream in a boat watching it come up. and. Helicopters are coming through. Uh, dropping messages. It, dropping messages, which all ended with camp high and be safe. Yeah, exactly. And boy, did we ever take that to heart. You know, no one had sort of pre-planned that That, that was event. absolutely unbelievable times. Yeah. Um, and so how long were you down at Phantom? Were you, who were you working for? Were you working, working for, for the concessionaire no, was, or for uh, the park? For the park. I was a seasonal down there. Uh yeah, Dave uh, Buccello was the uh, right. supervisor at the time. But I was only there a couple months. So shortly after the the water started to recede, I actually uh, took a permanent job at uh, Pinnacles in California. Oh. And uh, because I was only a seasonal and uh, I went out there, I was the climbing and search and rescue ranger at uh, Pinnacles for two years. And I came back in 1985 to Grand Canyon, and then I never left. Yeah. I was there for 27 years. Yep. Yes, you were. <laughs> and a full 27 years at that. Now, uh, did you have a climbing interest and background 
before I, you went to Pinnacles, or I did. You know, it started in uh, California. I learned to climb on gold line tied around your waist. But uh, I I went and spent a, a semester with Knowles, so uh, that's really where I got my experience in climbing, and then. Uh, and and you mentioned gold light, and you're a climber and a and a rescue guy and all that. Uh, just a little sub note: that was the meanest rope ever made. It <laughs> no was kidding. stiff, and uh, was it usually a nine mil or maybe it was a little bigger than that? Uh, but uh, almost eleven. I oh, think. were they? Yeah. If you got suspended or hanging free on a gold line, you'd spin you like a top. You would spin like a top. And that's where I first was around climbing and, you know, that stiff old gold line rope. But they it came in lengths of 10,000 feet or less. <laughs> you know? so that's the rope you bought and used. Reasonably priced comparatively to the new stuff. but uh, Well, fortunately, we've evolved way beyond that. Isn't there still an application for Goldline, though, for litters or none no, of that? It's not all, really. It's all uh, Kern Mantle yeah. construction. Really, the only that's a laid rope Goldline is, where it's twisted like that. Yeah. The only place you really find that is in a mar- marine application. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nowadays. Okay, interesting. Well, to get off the Goldline, then you're uh, back to the park in what capacity? Actually, uh, up in, I was uh, supervising the backcountry permit office, did that for a couple of years. Then uh, I moved down to Indian Gardens. I was the uh, area supervisor. My wife, Annie, who uh, we had met at Grand Canyon, got married in 1986, and we had our first child. And uh, so it was kind of time to move back up to the rim. And at that time, I became the search and rescue coordinator. Okay. Before we start getting into that, did, did you went to high school and stuff in San Diego? I did. And, uh, yep. were, did you play sports, or were you part no, of the Glee Club no. or uh, I mean, I, drama? There's drama no, club. Nothing to report, sir. <laughs> I, I hate to admit it, but I was uh, not very athletic. And oh, that's hard to believe. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I, I mean, it's the honest to God truth. I was a bit chubby. And uh, I went to a really big high school. You had to have athletic prowess. Yeah, to, you to had be to on, be a star to get it on, uh, on, the on the team. And yeah. And, and so now let's jump into the uh, SAR or whatever. Uh, how did you get that job? You just put in for it or you, you had well, previous, then, a little bit of previous right. resume from <laughs> the Pinnacles. Exactly. And, you know, I, I had a, you know, real interest in it as well. But, you know, I'd also uh, gone through quite a bit of uh, training to develop my skills. And so, yeah, I moved into it. It started to fit like a glove. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you were on the rim, you were on search and rescue. Were you also a ranger? Yes. Yep. I was a law enforcement ranger. And, but that, my primary role was managing the search and yeah. rescue program. So conducting training uh, for everyone, then also uh, going on missions and coordinating missions. Um, over time, things evolved. Uh, but back then, uh, the park aircraft was just a small jet Jet Ranger yeah, B3. Yeah, I remember that. So there wasn't much space in it, and it was only a pilot and one uh, medical care provider would fly out on uh, medevac missions. You know, things have evolved quite a bit now. It's, yeah, I loaded a few people on that ship. Not from my trips, but I helped with the evacuations and stuff, and I remember. Well, I've always told River Guides that uh, doing medevacs is something that you don't as a river guide you didn't want to get proficient at yeah that's right you know i was doing the government work and sitting in a sport boat with all different kinds of communication so they'd wave me in and there'd be a hiker there'd be a broken leg on a private trip or whatever but i was lucky that way i didn't have many of them coming off of my trips but well, it's also amazing how uh, things have evolved from a communication standpoint. Oh, that, that alone. You can remember when all we had uh, when you were down in the canyon was a ground-to-air ground radio to air and, and a, a signal mirror. And a signal mirror and, uh, and hopefully some luck. And I can remember talking to my coworkers, wouldn't it be cool if someday we could talk through a satellite? 
And people would shake their head. No, nah, that'll never happen. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're damn near. Yeah. We're getting close. What? There's actually places down there you can tuck in your cell phone. Yeah. It's yep. shocking. The most amazing thing, though, if you do have a critical injury or you're really under the gun to get things done, it's a real game changer, uh, the communication element, isn't it? Exactly. Do you remember some of your earlier events as far as SAR that come to mind? I mean, that's what a lot of us want to hear about is uh, you think about Grand Canyon, you always hear about the suicides off the rim. And I'm sure you've been around enough of that. Oh, I've seen a, a lot of death yeah. at, at Grand Canyon, whether intentional through suicides, but also accidental falls oh, yeah. or bet. Just very unfortunate uh, decisions, people attempting to swim in the river. Yep. I do remember uh, one of the earliest um, aviation-related accidents I went on was actually in 1985, um, shortly after I'd returned to Grand Canyon. A father and son from Oregon were in a Piper Cub, 1940s vintage, beautiful aircraft, bright yellow. And they took off from Pierce Ferry, and they were headed to Kanab, Utah. And they were flying up the Colorado River. Uh And they were going to turn and fly up Kanab Creek. And I know that because they had a gas, gas station map that they'd highlighted their route on. Well, as you know, when you're flying up the Colorado River and you hit Kanab Creek, it's not exactly, and you're down really close to the water. Yeah, there's no blinking signs and uh, arrows. That's like a uh, an alleyway. Yeah, it's very narrow. Yeah, you're not going to turn a plane up that. So they missed it. They didn't recognize it as Kanab Creek. Plus, you wouldn't have been able to go through there. So the next large drainage that they could turn up was to Pete's Creek. They flew up to Pete's Creek, and then they took another left up Crazy Jug Canyon. And then it became narrower and narrower, and in the red wall, they attempted to turn around. They struck um, the red wall with their wing and crashed down into a very narrow uh, slot, slotted canyon area. Oh, my. Yeah, and I, the reason I bring that up is it was uh, it had a weird... Um, connection to my wife. It turned out, you know, after we recovered the father and son, my wife had gone to school at Oregon State and was a c- college friend of that young man. Of that guy, no kidding. Old. What a small like, world. Small world, yeah. You know, interesting that you're on the subject of aircraft. I once... Uh, Oh, I hiked out across Powell Plateau and dropped off down to the Alarcon Terrace. And I was on my way. Man, that's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, no, it's in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. But somewhere uh, after I got down onto, I was with Scotty Davis and a group of us. uh, Quite an adventure I won't bore you with. But uh, (laughs) uh, we came across a plane wreck uh, up there. And I think it had already been cleaned up. Uh, there were just pieces and kind of in between, it would be in between bedrock drainage, I suppose, or, or something. Was and, it what uh, formation level was yeah, this? On top of the, it was kind of esplanade Yeah, that, um, I'm familiar with that accident. Uh-huh. It happened prior to my time. Yeah, it years was, ago. Yeah, it was too, um, I know exactly. the And it was uh, apparently... I think it occurred in bad weather. Yes, I think so. Was the uh... and you know who uh, I I run for years. People ask me how many river trips I've done, and I go, "Well, I know I've done over two hundred with Stuart Reader." With <laughs> That's Stuart my <laughs> Stuart Reader is a famous boatman. Oh yeah, here. I met him. Uh, he said he was down there and uh, working. It might have been when he worked for the park for the. Or, or was on trail crew or something. But he heard a plane in distress during a bad weather thing, and he thought it was probably... And he was on the hike with us, uh, too, Stuart was. So he thought it might have been that same guy. He might have heard it, you know, the, something was wrong up there. He felt like the, somebody was having trouble. There's a lot of... But small planes, I mean, that's a big, big canyon. Absolutely. Uh, 
in a situation where they're really inaccessible down there, are you guys accessing it as close as you can get with a helicopter and then roping into places or that's exactly long lining we, in? Well, on, on that particular one, we had to land, hike, and then rappel to reach the accident scene. And then uh, do now, you bring a long line in to, to sling escape out, everything? Mm-hmm. Well, to sling out a body, it would just be on the cargo hook. But um, years ago, I, I did one thing I did implement during my time at Grand Canyon was the short haul program. So yeah. getting a that's where a fixed rescue line is attached to an anchor system attached to the aircraft, and they can transport a rescuer in and insert him to an accident scene and extract out um, rescuers and or victims. Short line. Mm-hmm. Short haul is what it's called. And, Short haul, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it actually was developed in Switzerland and then uh, picked up by the Canadian Park Service, and that's uh, how it eventually migrated south. And that type of rescue is much more common in yeah. the United States. It's a kind of a poor man's hoist system. Yeah. It? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we did some short haul uh, when I was working on film production stuff. Uh, those Hollywood pilots, of course, were pretty gung-ho and stuff, but we did quite a bit of short haul on that. It's a little scarier than long lining yeah. for everybody involved. Well, when we would do training and uh, literally uh, get lifted off and then fly out off the rim of the canyon and you instantly have several thousand feet of air below you. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic down there, isn't it, flying out yeah, there? It's a pretty incredible experience. It is. So how long have you been retired from the Grand Canyon? I retired in uh, 2015. And a year later, in 2016, I was recruited by a helicopter company in Texas uh, that's a military contractor. And I just... Uh, Spent the last few years working full-time for them. Uh, again, they're primarily a military contractor. Shortly after I started working for them, I, I found myself in sub-Saharan Africa working as a hoist operator paramedic on Twin Otter, or excuse me, on a, a Super Puma helicopter. Oh, wow. Which uh, this company has the largest fleet of civilian uh, Super Pumas. They're 15-passenger helicopters. And we were uh, providing medevac or Kazavac support to U.S. special operations in, in Africa. Oh. So when they go out on patrols uh, fighting terrorism over there, we would be staged nearby. Staged nearby yeah. for and, assist, and, uh, clean up. We got involved in, in missions there. So that was quite, uh, quite an eye-opening experience after, you know, never being in the military. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet it was. That would make the Park Service more like a Boy Scout operation. Yeah, you got a lot of... There might that, be a few guns around the Park Service, but there's a lot of guns around the military, right? Yeah, and uh, there's people over there that really want to do harm to you. Yeah, no, and, and uh, were you in some hot zones? Yeah, everywhere we were. Yeah, because you were coming in right... To, to assist uh, uh-huh. casualty or uh, injuries and stuff like that. That must have been a whole different world for you. Oh, yeah. But, but back, let's stay in Grand Canyon for a little while. With the Grand Canyon has gone through a lot of transition since the 15. Um, you kind of were leaving just ahead of, you know, some changing of the guard, let's call it, down yeah. there and stuff. Um, do you still consult with the park? I actually still work as a paramedic occasionally. Oh, do you? Very intermittently, but um, to keep my skills up uh, between ski patrolling and uh, I still go up to the canyon because I can more use all my uh, skills as a paramedic there. Yeah. So I'm still involved with them. Yeah. I'm- you know what we need to do with this low water coming up is you and I get together and start a rescue company <laughs> that they all call us on. That's what we'll do. We'll you, talk later. You, you about know, well, that. people always uh, would worry about high water, but it's low water that causes all the stuck trouble. Stuck boats, uh, wrecks, because people aren't used to a lot of those objective hazards suddenly coming to the surface. Well, I, and I, I'm a believer that uh, after last summer, uh, oh, the God. combination of a real booming monsoon like we had and the low water, uh, it's creating 
has its far in advance of what we ever thought we'd see. Like Bedrock is a good example. Yep. Several floods have been in there. There, That's going to be a game changer down there, another couple floods uh, out of that tributary. Well, there's, yeah, there are certain vessels that aren't going to be able to make it. Aren't going to be able to make it. And those vessels carry up the vast percentage of uh, the recreational visitor. It's going to be a paradigm shift down there. It is. So anyway, we'll talk later about (laughs) these opportunities. When things get weird, the weird turn pro. You know the deal. (laughs) Um, You've also had some interesting things in regards to training and stuff. And how has that gone? Uh, Is it, how do you look at personnel? How do they work into SAR? Um, I've always been curious about that. You've got your beat rangers and you've got your different elements of law enforcement. Then you used to have the river uh, crew, which they're rebuilding. Right. How did how'd you go about that, Ken? You know, it, it requires somebody to have interest. You know, you're not going to... Yeah, you've for- got to have motivation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for example, with the river with Swiftwater Rescue, they're, you know, you're not going to go to a smaller creek and uh, teach it to them. Go, always go to Lee's Ferry and put people in in the Colorado River so they can experience that flow. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. You got to and you got to be comfortable in it with the right equipment, but also knowing that hey, if, if I get a good ferry angle, I can get to that other shore, or if I want to get out to that uh, object in the middle of the river, I've got to start. Uh, this far upstream. Yeah, there's a certain amount of physics involved in geometry exactly. to a large flow like that. And you yeah. put it all to your advantage, you know. So uh, um, along with uh, Tom Workman, you know, I started my f- teaching uh, swift water rescue up there. At, I remember at, uh, all that, yeah. At, at Lee's Ferry. I also, uh, with uh, rope rescue training, exported what we were doing at Grand Canyon and uh, – we developed a Park Service Rope Rescue School that had initially that been taught at uh, Joshua Tree. And for years, I coordinated the Park Service Basic uh, Technical Rescue School that was at Canyonlands National Park. Well, yeah, I, I noticed that, that you spent time in Canyonlands. Yeah, I wrote our rope rescue manual and... Uh, Every spring, I'd find myself for a week at the top of the Schaefer Trail at, out at Island in the Sky. Absolutely gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Special place. Big cliffs and uh, teaching people from all over the Park Service rope rescue. And so how long did you do that up in Canada? I mean, what a dynamic piece of topography, that whole, you oh, know, did that Joel's for, house uh, and the maze. 15 and, years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I also got the opportunity to uh, represent the United States at uh, the International Alpine Rescue Commission that was met every year in Europe at a different country, and I did that for a decade. Um, Now, that must have been something. So you were uh, hooking it up with the French and the the Belgians. And And it was – I managed to – bring back a lot of lessons learned primarily around helicopter rescue accidents because there's been a lot of fatalities of rescuers yeah. um, in in the midst of a an operation have a fatal accident. And we would share those here internally in the United States and within the Park Service, but try to learn from those lessons. Yeah. And, uh, that, that paid off for me. Years uh, at one point I was... Uh, with the park pilot, um, we were flying on a search to the uh, west of Hermit, and we flew into a uh, shaded uh, canyon area, narrow canyon, and we were losing sight. We were coming from a bright sunlit area, fly- flying in the helicopter. We were gonna about to enter a, a very dark and shadowy area, and Jerry, the pilot, myself immediately uh, recognized we couldn't see what was ahead of us. And he brought the aircraft to a stop, and suddenly there in that darkened shadow was a rock fin that if we'd continued forward, we would have struck. You'd have crunched it. And it was very reminiscent of a uh, fatal accident that had occurred in Norway where um, a military helicopter on a mission 
at daybreak was <coughs> flying up a shadowed cliff face and they struck a rock fin because they'd lost sight in sort of a, the lighting conditions. Yeah, and something out of continuity with what they know is there. And, oh, you can see it. And the visibility is such a big deal in small aircraft, particularly in helicopters, the, the relative. A, yeah. I had another close call with that same pilot. We, we were in the Hermit drainage up uh, in the Supai area looking for a landing zone to get to a, a fatality. And he spotted us an area that had a large enough touchdown pad, but it was kind of a loose, talusy material. And he touched down with the skids, but he held full power, and it was very exposed. I mean, it dropped off precipitously right next to us, and suddenly it gave way oh. underneath us. It collapsed, and... The fact that he had maintained full power, we were able to just uh, escape right out of Ease off of there, yeah. yeah. But had he lowered the collective... It, it, it would have just hooked you right off, yeah. yeah. Now, have you done any winter helicopter stuff? Yeah. Um, there's one in particular that uh, we went up to Zion to rescue a, uh, a climber and his partner. They'd been... Uh, Climbing what would have been, uh, I believe it was going to be a day day trip, but they got benighted and had to bivouac. Oh, I love that word, benighted. <laughs> <laughs> they were only wearing uh, s slick climbing shoes, and it snowed. And you can imagine the snow on very steep sandstone. Yeah, that slick rock. Although if if, if they'd had, you know, on, on dry... on. The dry rock, with good traction, they could have walked out. But they were in exposed location with essentially, you know, ballerina shoes. Yeah, yeah. And wow. so we had to insert a rescuer and, and get them out. And these guys, you know, they'd gotten through the night, but they were freezing cold. They were popsicles. Yeah. And then so uh, you, you drop a, a, a guy— and then he, does he, he have shoes for him or does no, he No, he made, he actually stayed on the short haul line and brought him out one at a time. Oh, clipped him in. Yeah, uh, exactly. Put him in. They had climbing harnesses which made it very simple for us, but yeah, we brought him right down to the valley floor and Yeah. Yeah, that's What a place too that is. I, oh yeah, but it done and, Many several rescues up there. Uh, one time we were doing a uh, rescue off the top of uh, Angel's Landing, and the uh, rangers who were already on top had requested that a vacuum mattress be sent up. And this thing uh, looks like a uh, a sleeping pad that you wrap around a patient, strap right. them, and then you suck the air out of it. So they brought it to us uh, to be uh, short hauled in with our rescuer. And it's in a large red zippered bag, and they, you know, gave it to our guy real quick, and we flew it up there. And when they pulled it out, it was an inflatable kayak. <laughs> Turned out that they stored both items in very similar bags, and nobody realized uh, till. Uh, we so what did you do? You had to go back and yeah. gather up, <laughs> Get, and switch stuff around. It was and... a second flight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the boat was of no use up there. Well, you know, and that's where your work has been invaluable uh, in regards to, like you say, you do an analysis on rescue failures. It isn't just the uh, the rescue scenario where you're Superman and going in there and saving people. You're addressing the the component of of uh, your people being safely going about things. It's like putting on rubber gloves with a bleeder exactly. kind of thing, which is invaluable to the different systems. Now, uh, in Grand Canyon, what sort of frequency of evacs? I mean, I know you guys during the heat of the season, and more and more and more, uh, the notoriety of winter hiking and winter, you know, winter boating has to be a uh, have only increased the element of your 
or frequency of your right. evacs. But on a big year, how many? Well, you talk about uh, winter boating. I had one time uh, we went in to do a uh, short haul in the middle of winter for a couple, it was, uh, husband and wife, that were stuck on the island at Crystal. I mean, they were wearing thermal uh, protective clothing, but they weren't going anywhere. And it was extremely cold conditions with low uh, clouds over us while uh-huh. we we're doing this mission, which which is was totally abnormal. We're all you know. You'd think about doing a rescue at Crystal; it'd be like June or July. Yeah, but the typical year at Grand Canyon would have between three and 400 search and rescue missions. Now, not all, not all of those involve a helicopter. There'd be about 150 to 200 missions involved, would involve a helicopter. In the wintertime, you could go a whole week and not have a mission. But June, July, and August, every single day, there's something going on, and it could be two to three calls, um, which would be a busy day. You know, three, oh, yeah. three medevacs or whatever. When you only have one aircraft, you're you know really busy, and you could easily stack stack missions, which very very frequently would occur. And so I have noticed down there you have the park painted. Tell us a little bit about that helicopter. It's a Notar. It's... Notar. It's an MD nine hundred two MD for. Is that McDonald a twin Douglas. engine helicopter? It is a twin engine. Yep. And with the NOTAR, it was originally incorporated into the aviation program because of the uh, quiet technology. When you don't have that additional set of um, blades in a tail rotor, there's less of a noise footprint. Yeah. And it is a very quieter It's quieter than the other ones. It It is. You could see it before you can hear it. It also has, uh, it's kind of nicknamed the bumblebee because of its uh, black, yellow, and white paint scheme. And that's believe it or not, uh, very methodically been picked out. And it has to do with what's called a high conspicuity paint scheme. So it, against the sky, it's very easy to see. Yeah. And that's the reason for that. It's to, for other aircraft to see it. Yeah, because you're in unusual places. You're uh, doing a lot of crazy stuff. How many people can you carry in that one? So I mentioned earlier that, you know, when we had smaller aircraft, the crew was just a pilot and a care provider, you know, a ranger on board. Now the typical crew is three. So a pilot and a helicopter manager up front who's handling the communications. They also are responsible for... Uh, manifesting uh, equipment that's loaded on board, as well as doing passenger briefings, and the care providers right r- in, uh, in the in the aft cabin. And that's typically going to be an an ALS uh, provider, most likely a paramedic. If we know we're going to something that is life threatening, an unstable patient would take a second care provider along. So it's got the capacity, and so you can have four plus the patient. Yes, easily. And uh, the patient, there's a a stretcher system that can be put in that goes right down the center of the aircraft, so we'll have a care provider on either side. Do you guys ever have any hoisting operations? You know, you see these uh, uh, Coast Guard boats, and they've got a whole hoist uh, scenario, but that's not as necessary. The park doesn't have a hoist. Um, part of that has to do with the amount of utility work that the aircraft does. So if you put a hoist on there, that's uh, several hundred pounds that you're not going to be able to fly of cargo because you're going to be carrying this hoist, oh, hoist around yes. all the time. Well, that makes now, sense. You can, there are configurations where you can put a hoist on very quickly uh, with cannon plugs and they, they quickly go on. But if you're already out at an accident scene and the hoist is back at the hangar, that's not going to be a, a wise move. And and it is a bit time-consuming. So putting the short-haul system on is light. You can also put it on the aircraft going to a mission where maybe you're going to do a short-haul. And yeah, maybe not. And you can offload it and set it aside at a landing zone if you're not going to use it. So you've got uh, more opportunity there. But if a hoist is required, <laughs> now the... Arizona DPS out of uh, has an aircraft in Phoenix, 
they just bought a hoist-equipped aircraft for Tucson, and the, their next one later this year uh, that they will get is going to come to uh, Flagstaff. So it's a Bell 429, a twin-engine aircraft. So that would put hoist-equipped um, aircraft not that far from the canyon. But in the past, we've also used uh, Nellis uh-huh. to, to do yeah. a hoist. So we've had both choices. Now, in those in those cases down there uh, where it is night operations, I, I know you guys have brought in military. That's a very that's a really and, good question. And yeah, it has explain be, all that. The park, uh, being within the Department of Interior the pro- aviation program, is limited from thirty minutes prior to sunrise to thirty minutes after sunset. Cannot fly at night. But if there is a, uh, a a situation at night and is life-threatening, in other words, if we don't provide intervention, patient could lose their life or a limb, then we request an agency that's capable of a, a night mission. Now, most likely that would be DPS or rescue uh, out of uh, Flagstaff if they're available. Oh. If uh, it was a going into a very established hell of a spot, whether it be the North Rim or even Phantom Ranch, if the pilots have been um, briefed or have actually practiced it, then Phantom Ranch, we might send a commercial air ambulance if that... Like Guardian. Right. If they had trained in it and know the hazards down there. Otherwise, it's going to be DPS or rescue is the the first go-to. And you're right. The military has also been used at night. Yeah, I remember a couple of events. I won't go into them, but uh, they brought in a gunship or something. I forget the uh, Randy. Randy Thompson. Didn't they bring? That was a military operation. It was out of Nellis. Yeah. um, And at the time, it was a a daylight mission, but— at the the south, weather was bad. I, right. I was exactly. There the it was a yeah. whiteout on the on the south rim. Yeah. So we requested uh, the Air Force, uh, and they brought pararescue from Nellis and flew up underneath the storm up the Colorado River. Now, uh, uh, they're using an HH-60 Blackhawk, and it is equipped with anti-icing on the blades, which most of the aircraft that we fly, uh, you know, the MD-902 does not have that. Bell 407s like oh, Guardian. Oh, yeah, flight. that's a remarkable. They do not have anti-icing. And you would, uh, that was absolutely required for that mission. They flew in right uh, um, up the Colorado River and landed there at Pete's Creek. Yeah, I, I, I was there and it was just like powerful. And for those of you who don't them know, fly, yeah. Ray, yeah. Randy was a. Uh, yeah, thank you. I was going to just tell the, the trail crew uh, employee, and he was struck by a rock uh, during some trail work. And he had multi system trauma. Um, and again, he was in a very remote location during a winter storm because it was a winter tra- trail yeah. trip that he was on. And so, really, uh, it was a bad situation. Randy was flown out, flown to Las Vegas, to a level one trauma center. Um, they did everything they could for him, and he, he passed away a couple of days later. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we were, I was on a uh, survey scientific trip, and so we were side by side through that whole thing, and Blackwell, Dan Blackwell would, uh, was flying Blackwell. in and out and stuff. I actually, I saw him yesterday at breakfast. How'd I was down in Phoenix, and he walked up. He was down there. He's living down outside of Tucson now. Oh, good for him. <laughs> He's a wild man. Yeah, he now, is There a was a cowboy. Man. Yeah. <laughs> he was a cowboy. Yeah, that it's just uh, such an incredible thing, uh, the things that you do and what it, uh, you guys provide down there, because if you're a professional guide and have a situation uh, that can be life and death, or even if it's uh, a broken leg, you know, it's such a big deal uh, what you guys take off the plate, uh, you know, when you land. And, yeah, I could see the, the, oh, the expression of relief. Oh, yeah. From Cheers. A lot of hugging. But I also have a lot of respect for, you know, the guides that I would interact with because, you know, they're in a difficult situation. They they might be, uh, you know, oh, I'm sorry I don't have uh, everything written out or whatever. I'm just like, hey, 
no worries. You, you know, you've taken care of their injuries. We got it from here. Oh, take, yeah. Take care of the rest of your clients. We're, we're good. <laughs> but I do, <clears throat> to all you guides, and I'm sure there's hundreds of you guys that are guides that listen to big adventures, do try and uh, <clears throat> look at their end of it and pin a nice note to the victim's lapel there so that they have a a running time zone and, and maybe the mechanism of injury and all that stuff. The more a guy does that, the better it is for you guys to give a little background. Absolutely. Because it's, it's fast and furious when the ship comes in. It's not like there's a lot of chat time. No, we don't spend a lot of time on the ground. Nope, you don't. But uh, we sure love you guys when you are there. And uh, so, and then... Another uh, interesting thing, uh, I'd like to hear about uh, the search team in Zonga Valley in Bolivia. <laughs> that sounds like an interesting, yeah, um, epic thing. It's weird how that came about. Yeah, but, how uh, did that come about? Uh, Michael Poirier, who was a uh, Peace Corps volunteer, had gone missing. Do you have the year there in front of you? Yeah, it was in uh, 2007. Yeah. And he went missing, hike, walking from a small village. In, uh, in, this is in the mountains of Bolivia, near uh, below the shadow of Huayna Potosi, which is a very uh, high mountain that people go to climb there. So this is at a very high altitude. And during a uh, storm, he was hiking back along a, uh, would be considered a, a drainage canal that carried water to a hydroelectric facility. He was never seen again. Um, and they had a search at the time, as uh, the Peace Corps did. They worked with uh, local Bolivian officials. Nothing was found of him. And there was all kinds of wild rumors about what might have happened, that he was kidnapped and was going to be held for ransom, that uh, just wild, wild stories. How fin people do yarn. Finally, the uh, Peace Corps was under such pressure to, you know, try and resolve this case that they looked to uh, conduct a very thorough search of the area. And I was contacted along with uh, Bill Vandergraaf. We yeah. worked together and developed good maps. We had, took a GIS uh, specialist here from Flagstaff with us. And we took a team of Park Service personnel that were uh, proficient in SAR. We uh, handpicked them from around the Park Service. We, br we brought along some uh, cadaver dogs. Oh, wow. Un unfortunately, the, the handlers had never, ever worked in the backcountry. They were from uh, Texas. Um, they yeah, had no they were used to getting out of the truck and walking across exactly. that cotton uh, field. We, we could see this was going to be a problem. <laughs> but one thing that we they we also brought was a veterinarian to uh, take care of the dogs. And that turned out to be fortuitous. We had extensive searches in these steep drainages below this uh, um, irrigation ditch I mentioned. Uh, yeah. And when I say irrigation ditch, it's a... It's a major canal. It's a very large, uh, well-constructed, cement-lined uh, thing built into the side of a mountain that went on for a couple miles. But there were places where, in a, in a rainstorm, for a person that had was using corrective lenses, who was out of shape, could have easily uh, been swept away and fallen to their death. And so our focus was checking those drainages. And we did find some bones, which was what we were looking for. But we were able to, with the veterinarian who was with us, he was able to uh, determine that w what we found were only cattle bones from cows that were in the area. So we never did find any remains, but it was quite... Uh, quite an incredible adventure to be working this operation in, in a remote country. In oh, Bolivia. no, that sounds fascinating. And uh, how long were you on that? Um, I actually made two trips there, one to scout and re recon everything. And then the second time we came back with the team and we were there for over a week. Of just intensive search. Oh, yeah. And it, it's, yeah. And were the Bolivians involved? They were. Um, and... That must be interesting, the different 
nationalities and different resources and different training and education and we all had that melting uh, pot of mel- stuff. Members of their uh, fire rescue team from La Paz. It's their the highest level rescue team they had, and uh, their commander was working with one of our rangers who was an incredible climber, who was from uh, a very experienced climber from Joshua Tree. And they were going down a drainage. There was one spot where the, the commander was going to jump across, and the, the rangers insisted he get him on belay. Well, then when the uh, commander made his jump, he, he fell. And uh, he, he actually got hurt. But he but didn't die. He sustained an injury, but and afterwards he recognized that that ranger saved his life by insisting that he... Put him on belay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Take the leap of faith, huh? How interesting. <laughs> and then, well, it had to have just been a beautiful country to it, be in. Oh, the it mountains there just incredible. Are, are incredible. Um, it's it's just amazing, you know. Uh, it's the highest, La Paz, the highest commercial airport in the world where you come into. Oh, is it? How, is it like 10,000 feet? Or? Uh, 14. The airport is at 14,000 feet. I believe, wow. yeah, I believe so. That's impressive. <laughs> and, on the Altiplano, it's above the city of uh, La Paz, but then we were went to the Zongo Valley, and it's one uh, valley over from where you always hear about the uh, the road of death. Uh, oh, yeah, the uh, uh, highway to... Uh, the highway of death and well the road in this in the zongo valley is uh, comparable it just doesn't have as much traffic on it oh really so you go off the side you're dead you see these pictures and videos of these vehicles that are hanging a tire going around an outside corner and stuff Uh, it's just like oh my god and trucks we can't see enough of the world can we no i'm fortunate that my job i Besides going to Europe and Bolivia, I also got to go to Jordan um, on assignment. Oh. Um, I was in, uh, if you're familiar with Petra. Yeah. And um, the Wadi Rum as well, um, conducting training through uh, USAID, teaching rescue techniques to personnel over there. Oh. And, so, and what was Jordan like? Uh, it's, it's a, it is a, uh, a, a beautiful country and everybody... Everybody is very friendly, and the food is exceptional. Oh, really? But this was also before uh, things really started, turned deadly in Syria. Yeah. Um, there were already refugees coming into the country, but this, I mean, you know, uh, Jordan is a, uh, a friend of the United States, so. So that puts them on one side of the fence, and then ISIS and all that other stuff is on the other. And... Yeah. And so now, where are you with things? You're you're uh, still involved occasionally with park yep. stuff, and what else have you got going on? Um, ski patrolling, but I only uh, I, I was just thinking about this. I started ski patrolling at Snowball in two thousand. Uh, well, it's been twenty years. Yeah, no, 20- I, I remember you in and out of there. <laughs> when I started up there, BJ used to say. I look like Scarecrow when I skied, but uh, I've gotten a little better. How gentle of him. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but I, I, now with uh, Layback and Derek Spice. Yeah. Uh, Those are great. I, it's I a love, great bunch up there. I love working up there. I only work on Saturdays. I've still got some uh, contract work I do with some folks. Uh, I'm getting ready to go up also to uh, Amangiri to help with some rescue training up there on their Via Ferradas. Um, that's the resort that's near Page. Right. And, and what kind of training are you doing with those guys? Like if somebody they have, can't get out of the hot tub? Or? No, no. On property, they have what are called Via Ferradas, uh, which are common in Europe. So ladder-type uh, ascension to travel up cliff faces. and. If oh, they, yeah, they do the activity thing. Mm-hmm, so. And do they put you up there? Not on resort, but they do take care of us. I haven't really been there, but you hear a lot about it. It's a super high-end sort of... I've I've done this for a couple of years, Uh, and uh, it's a pretty incredible experience. And I've eaten at the... You clever man. Yeah. 
<laughs> I also uh, still teach uh, rope rescue for the Air Force Pararescue uh, down at Davis Monthan on a uh, through a contractor, and uh, we do most of that up on Mount Lemon. Uh-huh. So a couple times a year, I'll be I'm down there. Well, so that's cool. You've got your fingers in quite yeah. a few little pots there. Do you have ambition to try something else, or I mean, or are you looking for travel, or what? What's down the line? Yeah, here? travel. I, that's what I want to do is get out there and see some stuff. Yeah, I can relate to that. You know, you're outdoors a lot, and I, I, I'll, I'd like to pose this uh, question uh, with people that have been outdoors most of their lives, and and uh, you know, the footprint gets ever smaller as far as our wilderness and our, our natural world. What are, do you have optimism as far as this society? pulling their head out and saving some of it, or is it a careening disaster? I don't know if I'm exactly an optimist about the people that use wilderness, because from my experience, my career, people are so apt to pull the panic button or push the panic button. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate. I've seen that many times where, you know, people are activating a personal locator beacon or using the... Uh, their Garmin inReach for a situation that is really not an emergency. Yeah, that's bad, isn't it? It's like uh, the little boy that called Wolf all over the place. And, you know, now uh, the newest iPhones are becoming capable of satellite communication. There's also that capability with Androids to actually reach out to a satellite and send a text message. So people will... Carry their probably carry their communication device, but they're not going to carry their common sense with them when they go in the backcountry, and that's very unfortunate because people uh, have accidents that are so preventable. And as we saw after COVID, people started getting out in in oh, the it was an amazing avalanche yeah. of humanity, and that's out there. great for people to get out there, but. Uh, making poor decisions. Um, well, and for the listener, too, you know, and we always think of this in Grand Canyon when we're uh, evacuating somebody. We really hate to call in helicopters unless we really need them because it's dangerous. It's dangerous business. Chop for an end next to the cliffs and finding a landing zone. And, Absolutely, uh, yes. But people with these individual communication devices uh they really uh eat up a lot of resources unnecessarily absolutely Uh, so that's kind of what you're talking about too there's a limited element that's why you're everywhere because we haven't got many of you (laughs) (laughs) we need to clone you to save more people and during my career at the canyon man i've i've had some close calls i feel very very lucky i've had some other ones as well one time uh I was, uh, we were flying in on a medevac um, down uh, near the Jewels, and we just landed at the beach. And this was after the first Gulf War. I uh, got out of the aircraft as the pilot's just starting to spool down the, the aircraft. So it's still running and it's hot. I'm getting out from under the rotor disc and walking toward this river party. And behind me, I can hear things getting louder. And it's just like, wait, that, that, it's not right. And I turn around, and coming around the bend in the river behind the, air, behind the helicopter is an A-10 warthog who's just down there. Uh, a uh, military uh, guy. Uh-huh. Probably had come back from Iraq. And again, this was after the first Gulf War, probably just, uh, you know, joyriding but i was so thankful we were on the ground on the ground how low was he he was only a couple hundred probably only two to three hundred feet off the water that's wild the closest uh call i ever had though that happened very late in my career and i was uh, with another ranger out on the the island at crystal in the rocks there was a cataract that uh, we were down there to salvage because it was stuck. And this thing with just its tubes, you'd think, well, how could it be that difficult to get off? Yeah, exactly. But 
everything on that raft had become filled with water, the coolers, the, the storage boxes. And once they've filled with water, it literally sank. Now, the, the tubes were still inflated, but it was... Sunk. It was sunk. It was just the frame is just barely uh, at, water, at water level. So we spent a lot of time emptying water and, and getting a come-along system on it. And then we uh, cautiously positioned ourselves while we um, put this hull system on it so that when it broke free, we wouldn't become entangled, you know, as it sort of pivoted. Oh, yeah, I, I'm visualizing line. that. Yeah. yeah. And you always position yourself down, you know, in such a manner that you're not going to get swept away by it. Oh, yeah, ropes. ropes. And that boat came, came loose. But what we didn't see what the, there was a must have been a bow line or something that was just underwater. And as that boat came free, that line got, R- got around. And- well, it got around me. It actually uh, entangled my leg and started to, this boat started to drag me downstream. And oh my I was goodness. pulled off the island. And, you know, we, we always have our PFDs equipped with a knife. Yeah. And I, I reached and uh, grabbed my knife and cut myself free. But uh, yeah, when, that's when, when, good... you're, when you're being drugged underwater by a boat, a runaway boat. <laughs> <laughs> that's an attention getter. Oh, yeah, my dear. Like, Don't let me drop my knife. <laughs> <laughs> the knife could be an extremely happy thing. Yeah. I had an interesting thing. I was pulling a guy off of a rock in Hans with a sport boat one time and you always try and stay above it or to the side of it you never want to get swept downstream because you can the water if you're downstream the water is going to come over and send you to the bottom of the river and i i got i kind of lost my angle a little bit almost had him off it was a snout and that is exactly what happened it the river just started rolling in the transom and I remember I was like this with that knife to cut that line. It, the knife, always have a sharp knife. Exactly. <laughs> that and a whistle. You, those two things on your PFD. A whistle can be pretty happy. Huh? Yeah. I had another uh, close call where on a, a SAR, probably not nearly as serious, but a little bit. Uh, it's kind of funny. You're familiar with David Whittlesey, who um, was a solo river runner. He was a woodworker from Prescott. Right. Yep. This was in uh, November of 1991. He uh, went down the river by himself. He was not a river guide, but he'd been on two river trips, uh, with uh, private trips with folks. And so he decided to uh, take a 14-foot raft and go down the river by himself. And he went through everything. He had uh, six weeks worth of food because he didn't want to run out. And he went on down beyond uh, Diamond Creek. And then in uh, 232 Rapid, River Mile 232, he flipped. Now, this is in November. And he's on the top of his raft, which is nice and slick. And he got uh, washed off it because it's, you know, um, water came over it. And he tries to drag it to shore in that area, which there's not really much. No, that's a tough deal he's in. So he's dragging it in cold water. He's only wearing shorts and PFD. He manages to get to shore, but he loses uh, contact with his raft and it floats away from him. And he is becoming hypothermic and he really can't go after it. So he watches his raft drift away from him. And he's in a cliffed-out area. He then um, recognizes he needs to move downstream. He starts traversing along a, a, a cliff. In the, in, in, the, the, in the process, he took a 25-foot fall, busted four teeth, was knocked unconscious, and oh, wound up in the, in the water, one. which uh, revived him that when he hit the cold water. He then manages to finally get to a beach. The only things he has on him are a Bic lighter and a knife. And then for six days, he, excuse me, five days, he uh, survived by making a fire, heating up stones and making a little bit of a 
little uh, bivy shelter in the sand with grass. He'd pull hot rocks into it. He caught a lizard and he found a unopened can of beer stuck and uh, wedged in some rocks. Those are the only things he had. We were uh, notified by somebody who was to pick him up at Pierce Ferry. So we flew down there, myself, another ranger, and uh, again, that same pilot uh, who uh, talked about those other two close calls. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry Bonner. Yeah, I, I knew Jerry. Well, yeah. we, we landed in a, that jet, jet ranger at the time, and he was in a, um, Whittlesey was in a vest pocket beach. It wasn't very big, so we had to land really close to the water. In fact, the back end of the skids were literally being lapped at and they're by the water, and they're in that, that super-saturated sand. And we're la- we landed a little bit of an incline. So uh, when we saw uh, David, you know, it was easy to find him. We're flying the river quarter. It wasn't that difficult of a search. Uh-huh. And uh, I had my lunch with me, which David just inhaled when I offered <laughs> it to him. When it was time to leave, we turn and we see the aircraft, and the helicopter has sunk. The tail is now, uh, the stinger, back by the tail rotor, is resting uh, in, in, down in, in the beach sand slightly below the water. Oh, my goodness. And this thing, it looks like it's doing a wheelie. The front nose of the helicopter is, you know, oh, sticking no. up in the air. And this is, again, before satellite communications. So Ooh, that's a we knew sticky that position there. We have no way to contact anyone. We've got this subject who's just survived five days <laughs> by himself, and we can't get him out. So what we did was we put David in the front seat of the helicopter, and then we, a couple of the rest of us went back and lifted up the tail boom of the right. helicopter. We took some of those large rocks that David had used to heat Warm up himself. <laughs> and stuck those underneath the rear part of the, the skids. skids and started running back and forth, you know, holding the the boom of the tail boom of the helicopter up and getting these rocks in. And then Jerry got in the front seat, the pilot, and started the aircraft. And then we eventually had had stabilized Wallered it. yourself out. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. Not exactly a profo way to... Yeah, the boys, the boys <laughs> from Dover, the pros from Dover, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just love these stories. I've always wanted to ask you all kinds of stories like this, and I just love it. You've got something. One more for us. I mean, we've run out of our time zone here a little bit, but I'm sure we'll keep everybody's interest, won't we? You guys listening? Yeah. I'll, I'll wrap it up. Every, you know, 9-11 was, uh, you know, an emotional time for everyone yeah. in the country and what we went through. But uh, what occurred at Grand Canyon, you know, if you remember, there was a complete— uh, ground stop of all aircraft, and the national airspace was uh, free of all aircraft. Nothing was flying, and that included Park Service helicopter. We could not fly. Um, During this time, there was a need for a medevac out of Phantom Ranch. Um, So the rangers down there basically sat on that patient, you know, medically as far as care went and and just uh, stabilized them. And within about 48 hours, we got a discrete uh, squawk code for a transponder that was approved that we could then fly down and conduct this uh, medevac mission. Uh That was conducted. But then the next highest priority mission, I I get choked up thinking about this, Uh was to uh, fly downstream to a commercial river trip to uh, do that death notification for the sister of one of the pilots oh wow who flew into the world trade center oh wow she was in one of the planes and uh, there was uh so uh, a female ranger came along and uh as we landed um you know the, the trip had no idea why we were coming in and uh that that female ranger uh 
went aside with uh, one of the guides, I think the trip leader and uh, the, the sister to, to, to break the news to her. Meanwhile, everyone else on the trip wanted to know what the heck is going on. Why are you here? So we gathered them around on the beach. And just like in front of your microphone, I, I tried to explain to everyone what was going on, uh, what had just happened. And but emotion is I just for real. Broke you know? down. Yeah. And did they, did they know about 9 11? Well, what turned out uh, is that one of the guests on the trip had a, one of those small shortwave radios. Uh, um, you know, and they had picked up uh, news and they thought it was kind of like the War of the Worlds. Yeah, it would have been. Where, oh, you know, uh, no, you know, this is like some fake radio story. This can't be true. So they had an inkling that something might have gone on. But then when I ex explained to them what the whole, the whole country was going through right then, you know. Oh, yeah, you were just, like, you were like a... A weird deal for them, huh? Flying in with all different kinds yeah. of ass. Well, I, I so appreciate the yeah. the humanity of what you've always done for the place down there. And that's a prime example of it. Thanks, Brian. And, you know, that's a great way to uh, kind of an ending segue for this show. You know, life is so precious. It is. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the lives you save or the people you help and stuff like that, uh, it just enhances everybody's life, really. You're just hearing about it. And so thank you so much for being here. You bet. You should always stay right side up, as you know. And this is Big Adventures with Ken Phillips today. Thank you, Ken. And Brian Durker. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bugner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.